Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. You know how I sit here for minutes usually before we start a podcast episode trying to think of what the introduction should be, what the way is that we should start the discussion, Sherry? Um, yeah. Is that why you asked for listener questions so you didn't have to think so hard? Well, I still, even before <laughs> I read the listener question, I usually try to have some kind of you intro. You always have to have some like funny story or antidote or something like that. You used to. You used to work really well, hard what? at it. What I want to start with is what you just said. What did you just say before I hit the record button? Ooh, I <laughs> what did you just say? I said, wow, I suck at being positive. Yes, that's good. I think we should... I wanted to start with that after I heard you say it because I, I want this <laughs> listener to be forewarned before I ask you this listener question because I have a feeling <laughs> you're going to come down kind of hard. I don't know. We'll see. So our listener question. Hey, and if you listener want to ask a listener question, just email it to me, matt at soberandunashamed.com and you will get a real life, real response, not a clinical response because we are not clinicians. So here's the listener question, Sherry. My wife is done with my drinking. I quit, then start drinking again, mainly because I'm lonely and get no support from her. Can you help? Do you want to go first? Or do you want me to go first? Well, I'm not... I'm not that nasty. No, you're not... I, I just want him to understand... I want them to understand that, like, yeah, you don't get support because you've burned a lot of bridges. There's been a lot of damage that you don't see. You don't know. You aren't aware of. Maybe they haven't opened up and told you why because of bad reactions. If you're writing the question, you've probably listened to our podcast, so you can kind of have insight. But there's a lot of stuff underneath your wife's skin that she's probably holding in. And so when you say that you're lonely and you start drinking again, well, then that's again, that's another way that you're escaping and not trying to connect with your wife. So then there isn't any connection building. And I know that we say you can't just go to them the only time, you know, your partner all the time. So maybe this is when you find a hobby. You try to do something that is less lonely. I know we have a lot of people that listen to podcasts because they're maybe a little bit more isolated. And they feel like they have some kinship with people. Um, even if it's just them listening to other stories. Early but, sobriety is when I started listening to podcasts. Right, right. And, and I did that's, get that kinship from other stories. And You're you right. were a big reader, especially about like Quit Lit and biographical yeah. pieces about alcoholics. So you felt like you were connecting with another human. That's right. Maybe not like in the same room. I'm embarrassed by how little I read now. But when I needed it as part of my recovery, mm -hmm. I read a ton. You're And you're explaining exactly why. Yeah. So, I mean, I know, I don't know what your program is that you're trying to work, whether it's just you're trying to quit on your own and then, and, and I mean, you might want to look at that and investigate that. If you're going back to drinking because you're feeling lonely, maybe it's because you don't have community with people who are in the same boat as you because your wife is not in the same boat as you right now. We cannot 
Partners cannot be cheerleaders. Yeah, a really overly simplified and dramatic way to kind of explain this is, you know, if a person was complaining that they don't have enough money because they've never hit the lottery. Well, if your plan for having enough money is just to wait till you hit the lottery, good luck. And if you're a recovering alcoholic and your plan for getting support is to wait until your wife is ready to support you, good luck. Because you got to get sober and do the recovery and do all that stuff on your own to prove yourself to your spouse so that your spouse will perhaps again someday start to trust and like you. Because if you if your if your idea of a support system is to take the person that you have traumatized and created chaos for for the last years or decades, and expect that person to pick you up and support you, it just it's just illogical. It's like committing a crime and expecting the victim to be your rehabilitation. Also, I want to add the piece of feeling lonely. I feel like people who have self worth and self confidence find really good company with themselves and don't really have a problem being alone in a lot of times. You know, like, you can find contentment. I don't know. Maybe that's just years of feeling like I was alone in our relationship. Um, but sometimes there is, a, there is a point in your life where you do need to be a little lonely to try to figure out who you are, what makes you happy. And maybe this is part of the healing journey and the process. And it's hard. Recovery is not easy. It's very painful. And it can be very lonely. Yeah. I mean, like, I just want to interject, like, the holistic psychologist that is on Instagram actually just had something about, like, how recovery and the recovery work is the hardest thing you'll ever do. It's lonely. It's isolating. It can be traumatic to you and you have to then sit with those feelings and try to figure them out and analyze them to find out who you're going to become and then you'll blossom. Yeah. Yeah. No, the holistic psychiatrist is, or not psychiatrist, psychologist. Psychologist, sorry. She's great. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. There is learning in the lonely. It's also very triggering. I, you know, we talk to a lot of people who are struggling with early sobriety that talk about loneliness and boredom are their two big triggers. So is it necessary? Probably. Is it hard? Yeah. I mean, when we drink a poison, when we drink a toxin and become addicted to it and it messes up our life in a really bad way, the idea that there's a simple solution that's what I was looking for when I was trying to get sober. But now, looking back, I just think it's laughable. Like, this is major stuff, major trauma that you're causing for your family. It's a, a 180 that you're trying to pull with your brain chemistry, with all the patterns of your life, with your worldview. I had a reader this week put a comment on our blog that it seems like his worldview has changed as he's in long-term sobriety. And I thought, you know, I've never had anyone put it that kind of, um, you know, all-encompassingly. But I think that's right. I mean, my opinion about a lot of things, besides just whether or not beer is a good idea, has changed as a result of sobriety. So, mm -hmm. So if you're looking for an easy way out and you think, oh... You know, my wife will support me and um, I'll go to a few meetings and everything will be great. I mean, that's what I was looking for. I can't tell you how many times I would stare at myself in the mirror, the bathroom mirror downstairs, 
on a morning after a bingeful night or weekend and say, that's it. I don't drink anymore. There, it's over. And then, like, do that wash your hands motion and be like, I don't want to talk about it anymore. I'm sober now. And think that was it. That's all I had to do. Mm-hmm. Just be determined for five minutes and it'll be fine. Yeah, and I mean, in our case, you, uh, we kind of lived in a lonely life a little bit because you drank in our family room in the basement and I separated and I didn't even want to be down there. Um, so we had become a couple that didn't connect in a lot of ways. And I, I don't know if that's the situation in this case, but they've kind of set the relationship up for that loneliness. I don't know if this person went out to bars and drank or drank alone like you did in the family room and like a lot of others that we hear or just kind of did the social stuff and then came home and drank worse. But I think that alcohol has been a barrier in your relationship this whole time. Yeah. And that's been a big division. And so you've, you've created a relationship where you're going to be lonely and you take that out. They take the alcohol out that that's still there. I mean, some of us call it building a wall, you know, a defensive wall, but it's also so much more that is that, you know, division. Well, it sounds like this drinker has uh, half of what I had, what I needed when it came, when I made the move to getting sober and staying sober. It sounds like he's got the detachment. My wife is done with my drinking is how the question starts out. So it sound, I had that, and it sounds like he's got that. His wife's detached. But the other component that it took for me to get permanently sober was that my depression and anxiety was just so debilitating. I was very close to not being able to get out of bed in the morning, and it was starting to really impact my work. And, like, you know, the house of cards was about to come crumbling down. And I'm not sure, because it doesn't say in this question, whether this person is there or not. The only reason we stopped drinking, Amber Hollingsworth, who we've interacted with, had on the podcast and been on her videos, she talks about how she hates it when someone says you got to want to quit drinking. Nobody ever wants to quit drinking. You have to get to a point where it's your only option. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with her there. When, when I quit, it was because you were completely detached and I thought I was going to lose my whole family and I was so depressed and so anxious that I couldn't think of anything else to do. Because if I could have thought of anything else to do that would have kept alcohol in my life, I would have taken that path. But I couldn't. But you had already exhausted those choices right. in a lot of ways. And that's something Amber says too, is she will let her clients say, okay, well, we'll try this for a while and see how it goes. We'll try this for a while. Because you get to a point where you've exhausted all the avenues. That's right. And now the avenue is maybe your face, maybe this like the reader and you or, or the listener question person and you are just like okay i've exhausted all of those avenues now i just have to sit and deal and that's that's the hard part but it's not easy like you said there's no easy way around it but you have to go through it that's right it's it's a huge decision point what is important to you as the drinker and for me not losing my family was more important than alcohol i mean just barely I'm not bragging about being some saint over here and the getting a, a solution for the depression and anxiety um, because it got so bad that that actually not drinking finally, finally tipped the scale to feeling like it was better than drinking and dealing with the consequences. And so we know this person has detachment in their life, but we don't know where they are 
with other consequences, depression, anxiety, or a host of other consequences. Is that enough to make you do the, the one thing you don't want to do, which is to quit? But if if you're just waiting, if you're going to blame your wife and expect her to be your support system, I think I just think that's a huge mistake. I think a lot, I mean, we meet and we inter, interact with and we know intimately lots of spouses who feel lots of guilt when they're not being supportive of their of their spouse who is in early sobriety. And, you know, I, I don't think they should feel guilty. You were, you were traumatized. You've been through a lot. You've got your own recovery to do. It's not your job to lift up the drinker and help them stay sober. It's not only not your job, it's actually not helpful. Because if you do, Sorry. if you are a great support to that person then they aren't building real authentic support. They aren't doing their own work. You know, at at some point, you got to pull up your big boy pants or big girl pants and and get healthy and become independently healthy so that the relationship can thrive. And if you're not in a position to do that, um, then it's just, then the support of your spouse becomes another crutch. Yeah, and I know, like for you and early sobriety, it's not that you were avoiding. You were just getting through those cravings. What was... Uh, you, you like, we had, <laughs> we had a really old fence, but you decided, I'm going to stain this really old fence, which I think we replaced, like, the next year. I thought but, hey, I felt like it, fix it. But I... <laughs> well, it was falling think, down in okay, places, and well, I thought stain would fix well, it. Well, but you were trying to fix it, and you were trying to work on how to fix it. I was so just that being was, cheap, Sherry. <laughs> but that was part of your plan, but I think wood. like keeping yourself busy, not unengaged and not thinking about it, but working through those feelings that would maybe set you back and, and giving you some, some self-confidence. Like these are some things that I may have missed around the house. So doing some chores again, it's not like pushing it off to the side and not thinking about it and busy work. But sometimes busy work is a way to get through those lonely periods and fight that craving to keep you from wanting to go back to drinking. What was it you said that, that I had you say to open the podcast? What did you say? What did I say that I said before? Yeah. That I have a hard time staying positive. That was being, really... Being positive. That was really helpful in my early sobriety, that you have a hard time <laughs> staying positive. At the time, I was really mad at you for it. But in the long term... I mean, it's one of the keys to the fact that our marriage is surviving is because you didn't over-support me when I was going through what I thought was the hardest thing I'd ever go through. Re- re- recovering the marriage is definitely harder than finding sobriety for me, but finding sobriety at the time was the hardest thing I'd ever done. Yeah, had. and I think that you have to find some things to do to entertain yourself. That's and right. that's what you did. That's right. And marijuana and pornography are oh. not the things you should find. Or tra- yeah, transferring yeah. any. That's another. That's transferring another the listener question. Yeah, don't become. Don't Is weed become okay? Like a My huge husband runner. stopped drinking. Is weed okay? Yeah. No, weed's not okay. Yeah. We'll elaborate at a different time, but the short answer is no. It's bad. Uh, just wanted to sound like a crusty old man as much as possible. The weed. You could have said that. The weed. Sounded more. The marijuana. The marijuana. Stay away from those marijuana cigarettes. Sherry, people on both sides of this equation, both the drinkers and the loved ones, struggle with the concept of blaming the alcohol. 
taking the blame off the drinker, off the addict, and placing it on the substance. You and I have good friends, Anna and Mitchell, that host the We Are Recovery Facebook page, and they've got all kinds of resources. They were the first people that we heard actually talk about the addiction as a third person in the relationship. So you got the the addict, well, no, I shouldn't say it. You got the person who was consuming the substances, you've got the loved one of that person, the spouse, and then you've got the addict. Is Think of that as a third person. And both of those first two people can blame that addict. That's the person that we need to be mad at, not be mad at each other or not be full of shame and rage for ourselves. And you and I, you especially really like that third person idea. Mm-hmm. So you and I, you know, have adopted and adopted relatively early on this idea of blame the alcohol. Anna and Mitchell, they do their, you know, the the alcohol or the addict is a, is a third person in the relationship. Laura McCowan, who is more famous than all four of us, Anna, Mitchell, me and you combined, best-selling author of We Are the Luckiest, and her new book is called Push Off From Here. She says, it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. So again, don't get stuck in the shame cycle. Don't sit around and blame yourself. If you're the loved one, if you're the spouse, don't sit around and blame that person. Don't shame them. It's not their fault. But you are responsible for picking up the pieces and moving forward. So three people in the recovery community that are all making great progress. Anna and Mitchell look great. They, they've got a, a, I think their child is a daughter, right? Mm-hmm. Young daughter that's thriving and... Laura McCowan, like I said, she's, I think she's getting married or got married. I can't remember, but she's got her second book coming out that's, or maybe has come out now. Um, that, and she's a super popular uh, uh, writer, uh, author. And then you and I are, we're hanging in there and doing okay. So all these people that are doing okay really adopt this concept of blame the alcohol. But yet, so many of the people we work with are like, nope, can't go there. That doesn't work for me. And I just, I think that's interesting that the common denominator for success in individual and relationship recovery is to, is to remove the blame from the person and put it on the substance. And yet so many people reject. I mean, listen, a lot of what we talk about, people are like, oh, that makes so much sense. I'm with you. Yeah. The, you know, your story is my story. We hear that kind of stuff all the time. But this piece of advice is the one that people push back on. I mean, Have you I, noticed that? Yes, but I can kind of understand. I can understand that. I okay. will say it took a while for me to come around to that blame the alcohol concept because I didn't want you to push off or shirk off any of the responsibility that took place. Now, this was early on in the relationship of of early sobriety. We didn't really necessarily adopt those ideas during the times you were trying to get sober. We had. I had found a book by Lisa Fredrickson about if you love me, you'll quit. And that was the first time I was introduced to the idea of um, brain chemistry and the hijacking that happens with the addiction because I didn't have an understanding of it. But I also, even after understanding and reading that, I was still like, but I don't want an easy out. Like, you made a lot of these choices. These were things that you did. Mm -hmm. So it did take a while to say okay, I can blame the alcohol and I can look at you like you're a different 
person when you're intoxicated. Mm -hmm. Because in a lot of ways, you became a different person. Um, But I think it was just that responsibility and accountability piece that I felt like some people... Some people, I'm sure, have a partner that would easily use that as an excuse and never want to investigate the real reasons and talk about the past. So I can see why a lot of people are hesitant to say, I'm blaming the alcohol for it. Now, for you, I think it was maybe a little bit easier for me because you had always been really accountable for your actions in a lot of ways. Now, I didn't like your post-drunken argument blanket statements and how we would, you know, you didn't want to talk about it again or whatever. Sometimes that would happen. So I think, I think that I can see both sides. Like, it's hard to just say, yes, Matt, alcohol took hold of your brain and you became a different person. But the alcohol was in the house or you had to plan to go get the alcohol or blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You keep you choosing still it. to you still drink. You it to your lips. Yeah. You still keep choosing to make alcohol your go-to place. Before I really understood how it was the addiction driving you to do this, even in sobriety, to make these plans. And some people like have partners that have hidden alcohol, and it's so sneaky the way they've gone about it. But it's still, the alcohol has hijacked the brain, and so it is just making them do those bad things. It's just a bad influence making them do those bad things. So that was hard to understand. I want to hear what you think about this. We talk a lot about resentment processing and how important that is. How important it is for both sides, but especially for the, the spouses of the alcoholics to take that pain, that knowledge of what happened when your spouse was under the influence the chaos, the trauma, all that was created because of alcohol, to take that and work through it. Uh, There's a number of ways to do that. Perhaps the most effective is to work through it directly with the alcoholic themselves once they're in sobriety. That's what we do. You could also work through it with a therapist. You could work through it with a support group like Echoes of Recovery. If your alcoholic is not willing or not available to do the resentment processing, But we talk about it all the time, and it comes up over and over as we uh, interact with people. I think it's it's like foundational. I think it's super important that the resentment processing take place. So my question is, if you haven't gotten there yet, if you haven't started doing resentment processing, if your spouse is just can't can't do it, and you know, one of the, the measures of whether or not resentment processing is appropriate yet in your relationship is, can both parties... Can the drinker and the loved one go back to those memories without them re-traumatizing them? I got to the point, and it wasn't quickly, but I got to the point where we could talk about the most horrific thing that I did as a drinker, and I could say, I'm sorry, Sherry, I'm sure that was awful. Tell me more about about it from your side of the fence. I want to understand what you went through and not have that throw me into a shame spiral. But that's hard. It's hard to get there. So if you're not to the point yet, where you can resentment process without it re-traumatizing you, the resentments are just kind of hanging there. And so I'm wondering if the, the, the hang-up is, how do I blame the alcohol? Or if I decide to blame the alcohol, what do I do with these resentments? I haven't worked through them yet. My spouse isn't there yet. But I'm supposed to both 
take the blame off <clears throat> take the blame off of my former drinker and not deal with the resentments yet because we're not there yet. So what do I do with the resentments if I blame the alcohol? That's my that's my new theory. I don't know. What do you think? Hmm. So what do you do with the resentments in early sobriety? If you, when if you, you say, okay, blame fine, the alcohol. Matt and Sherry are telling me to blame the alcohol and they don't seem like they're going to well, relent that's... on this. So I, okay, fine, 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 fine. I don't want to, but I'll blame, I'll, I'll take Anna and Mitchell's advice and I'll say there's a third person. That's where I put all my blame. But what do I do about the fucking resentments, these horrible events that happened that this person that I'm married to isn't capable of talking about with me yet? Well, after we met Anna and Mitchell... And they had that third person in the relationship theory. And we've had people say alcohol was a mistress sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe shift it from being the mistress to being like the devil on somebody's shoulder. I thought of it as like, here's you and I in a nice little family picture sitting side by side. And there's this black shadowy entity behind us. Mm -hmm. And that's where I feel like I shifted the resentments to that that black shadow, that's where I kind of put that anger. And I think that it helps me be able to process the resentments and be able to kind of say, I can go to the resentments and talk to you about them without re-traumatizing myself too. Because I felt like I was, you know, and this was a couple of years into early sobriety, right? I mean, so that's it wasn't, an important point. None of this was fast. Yeah. So, so it wasn't like it was, you know, the flip of the switch and we didn't, I mean, we had always tried to do this, like, resentment build, you know, breaking down the wall before a wall builds sort of conversations, even when you were drinking. Um, I didn't, I held back a lot because they would off, often trigger me in the beginning of your sobriety. Um, so it was held on and it was hard and it was that idea of I was still angry and then, and then I started seeing a therapist and I realized that I needed my own recovery but then when I felt like I couldn't really be I guess brave enough to process the resentments without being emotional which I think all of our listeners know I can get pretty emotional and mm -hmm. um so I would kind of be able to tell you to your face but think that I was talking to that like black shadow over your shoulder over our shoulders because the person I was talking to you Matt was not the person that was doing that. But so, so the question is, do you think this concept of the resentments are, are the unprocessed resentments is what's holding me back from blaming the alcohol? I can't reconcile that. Do you think that makes sense? Um, to a degree, perhaps. Well, let me, I mean, I don't All I would say is I feel like what held me back from wanting to blame the alcohol was because I didn't want you to have an escape goat. I didn't want you... Well, that's what I'm saying, isn't I, it? I, I, okay. You still feel resentment toward me. Yeah. I wanted there to be accountability and ownership. And I didn't want you to have to say, well, it was the alcohol, so now that's out of the way. But once I said, Sherry, that incident that you're describing, when I tore up the the bedroom in the middle of the night and broke a bunch of stuff and woke up the kids and it was painful and traumatic and awful and one of the worst nights of your life 
Your version of the truth is the truth. I acknowledge that. I'm so sorry that I did that. I'm so sorry that it happened. It's unforgivable. All of that. Once I said that, that was the accountability you were looking for, right? It's less about the apology and more about the acknowledgement that your version of the truth is the truth. Yes. And that allowed you to release the resentments and blame the alcohol. Right. Okay. So... The, the tie between the processing the resentments and the the acknowledging this whole concept of blaming the alcohol I think I think that's a I think that exists and it explains why because you're right I mean you and I have been do- at this for years and years and years now and we you know we get to know people and we're like oh well here's what we did and they're like oh that's hard to do and they're six months into sobriety for instance yeah, and, it would be hard to we do were six like, months. Yeah, we were a couple years in. Well, and I mean, even I just think about that conversation that we had with your family, your sister and her husband, your parents. Um, they really didn't like that concept of you saying, well, no, I was... they didn't. I was under the influence of alcohol. This was not me making the decisions, but they were still like, well, you were still... Yeah, they didn't want to Matt was still going... Alcohol. But then when we even said, hey, well, it was all over your house... You were still supplying it and like calling out happy hours, and they fucking didn't like that at all. You can tell I have a little resentment about that. Yeah, um, there's an unprocessed resentment there. Blame, but but, but we can't sure. process it with them because they're closed off and thinking you have to be so responsible for yourself that there's no way that there's anybody that has any addiction, like without it being a conscious decision, like a black sheep of the family. Yeah, you are morally so, corrupt. I think they've come a long way. I think they have, but at that time, they wanted to blame you, and they didn't like that you were trying to push off that blame to, oh, I was introduced to it by my family, society. Everybody talked about no, say no to drugs when we were in high school, and there was don't drink and drive, so you made sure you had a good driver, but no one said, hey, you know what? You can become an addict to alcohol. Yeah. You know, you can ruin your life with drinking. Yeah, and even without becoming an addict, you can ruin your life, and even without becoming an addict you can you know it's a toxin and it's causing you problems but i think if we had had the statement from laura mccowan like it's not your fault but it is your responsibility that was one thing that we learned later on you know a couple of years that is so brilliant that's what don't you I, wish you would come up with that that's yeah such a great one but i think that one that was a piece that made me make that shift too and you were the one that brought it to me because you were the one that read her books and read her posts and stuff yeah and so I was like, yeah, that's how I feel. It's not your fault, but it's your responsibility to clean it up. And I think that that's where that wishy-washy amends process that maybe and it's even in the 12 steppers that kind of bat that around of like, no, that's not a good thing to do. Blame the alcohol because they want you to be so accountable. But yeah. then you have these really shitty amends that allow no conversation. Let me throw another piece into this. Throw a little wrinkle in. If you will, one in our within our Echoes of Recovery group, one of our uh, wonderful participants shared recently, within the last couple of weeks, of a short video, and it's Brene Brown talking about when she came to the realization that resentment is part of the envy family. So, mm-hmm. what she says is she always thought resentment was tied to anger. Mm-hmm. And then somebody that she relies on and trusts said, no, 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 resentment isn't about anger, it's about envy. 
And I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks now, rattling this around in my brain. I think not only is Brene Brown right, but I think it's I think it's potentially really important because if you have trouble letting go of the resentments and if you have trouble blaming the alcohol, is it possible that it's because you're envious? And let me be really clear because I think it would be easy to take what I've said so far and say, what the fuck is this guy talking about? I'm envious of pissing myself and being falling down drunk and driving drunk and being mean to my kids. No, hell no, I'm not envious of any of that. But are you as the loved one of an alcoholic potentially envious of the fact that your spouse sometimes completely checked out? Yeah. Went in the basement, like you said, Sherry, that I did, and drank and watched mindless television and ignored the family while you were, you know, making dinner and getting the kids ready. Often this happened on a Sunday night. Making dinner, getting the kids ready for the school week, making sure everyone went through the shower. Uh, you know, you got your hey, you got your Chromebook charged. We got to we got to be ready to go. So you're left holding all the responsibility while I'm zoned out in the basement, mm-hmm. or on a really bad night while I'm passed out, or when you just want to get some sleep and I'm keeping you up, annoying you and pestering you and and being awful to you, or the fact that you think that you can get by with that behavior. Yeah. Like, I'll like just say I'm sorry tomorrow and then it's going to be fine. Yeah, the shamelessness of it all. That's what always pissed me off was like, if I acted like this, even in a, in a sober state, well, I do have a story for this. If I acted like this, you would be so mortified and pissed, but you think it's okay for you to act like this whenever the fuck you want. And then I'm supposed to just be like, oh, whatever. Yeah, I'd like to check out. I'd like to just do whatever I want, do whatever I want, say whatever I want, and then give a blanket apology the next day, and it's all supposed to be, you know, great. Yeah. It And I, I have heard that statement. Um, it a, I think it was in one of Brene Brown's books as well. Oh, really? So maybe um, this is not a new video. It's not. A, it's not. The video was new to me, the, that piece, but, but that... Um, idea and that concept because it was also <clears throat> that anger is kind of born out of fear in a lot of ways so you add that fear of like the instability and the uncertainty that comes with this behavior of that the drunk is that the person who's drunk is like well, I'm gonna do whatever yeah so it's fear and envy and then that's where you get your resentment and anger we've heard a lot of people say that they're eat and and openly talk about it and admit that they're envious that their spouse went to rehab. Yeah. You know, when do I get to go away for thirty days to a and focus only on and focus on myself, myself and my recovery and my work. Yeah. Thirty or sixty days. Yeah. And then I get to take time away several times during the week to go to my meetings, so I can just really focus on myself. Yeah. We have lots of people like that say that. So it sounds like you buy into this concept that. The resentment is born out of envy. Can we talk about some of the specifics in our relationship when, and I think you just did, but like when it would get really bad, like when I tore up our bedroom and woke up the kids and broke a bunch of shit. Well, that one was... You weren't envious. See, so, so this is why we need to be clear here because it would be easy for me to get confused and be like, oh, so should we take you to a... One of those smash it rooms where you get to break shit? You're not envious of the breaking shit. What are they called? Rage rooms? Rage rooms. Sorry. Smash it rooms. That sounds like a really lame video game. Sorry. But 
but you get what I'm saying. It would be easy right. for the drinker to be like, oh, uh, resentment's about envy. Oh, well, then we got to make it so she can take things that we own and paid but, for and break them, and then she'll feel better. That's not what we're saying at all. Right. It's the it's the doing the bad act and then getting away with it. Right. Like, that was a that's really... That's Yeah, about. that's a real example that you used. That evening, or that night, was born in fear. And that's where the anger came from. Yes, then resentment came from the fact that I had to clean up and I had to cover up and sort of stuff. So so the fact that, you know, you cover were trying to cover up with the kids. And that was an evening that I called your parents. And then I still fucking went to church that next morning. And we still had Easter. Are you just bragging about how no. godly you are? No, I'm saying I still had to go on with my day. You got to sit and sulk. I didn't mean to make a joke. Sorry. So you got to sit and sulk and feel sorry for yourself and maybe contemplate whether or not drinking is a good idea. But on the phone with your parents, you were trying to connive your way out of it, acting like I'm the crazy one. Even then, and I was like, "Holy shit!" Another thing and then for you there to was, be resentful and yeah, and they could hear. Okay, so what? Okay, so, so so that was an example of how I think it was both. So this is good. This is important. A lot of the spouses that we interact with say that they are married to a very smooth-talking alcoholic. You were married to a very smooth-talking alcoholic. So when you called my parents in the middle of the night and told them I was drunk, and then I started going, oh, no, no, it wasn't alcohol. Sherry's just crazy. You can't believe how bad this is. You Can you even imagine living with a crazy person like I have to? It's so much worse than you've ever imagined, and I tried to pin it all on you, right? We're... Were you envious of the fact that I was going to get away with it with them and that I was I was a smooth talker like that? Because mm. I know you've said sometimes you, I mean, not on the podcast. On the podcast, you're awesome and you let it out. But sometimes when it's just me and you, you struggle to, to put your thoughts together or right. say well, what that... you want to say. So were you envious of me being a... What do they call that? A uh... manipulator? <laughs> yeah, asshole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That you you could like have this calm voice, and I called it the condescending drunk voice, because mm-hmm. you could be very, you could like really get focused and try to remain calm, and it was like I could just see the wheels turning of manipulation in your brain. Now you say no, that's not how it was, but I I felt like I could just see like this. A little switch hit, and you're like, okay, so Matt's going to start using a calm voice and make it throw it back to her, where she looks like she's crazy and emotional and out of control. So, yeah, I was not, I don't know if envy is the right word. I think I was, that, that I think was more based in fear than that made me angry, because I thought, good God, how scary is this situation that he can turn it on me. He can be in this calm voice when just five minutes earlier he was screaming and throwing a fit. But then he'd be like, oh, I'm, no, it's not me. This is, let's think about this, Sherry. Like those things. Then I would just want to put my hands around your neck and just, just scream because I was so out of control. But those, I think, were fear. I think the... The envy part was, I used to say in our relationship all the time, that it was very, 
um, like unbalanced and that it was a double, like, what, I don't remember. Yeah, uh, d- double standard. Double standard. And and I and never what, understood that. And that's where I feel like the envy and the resentment came in because you could do, say, you could change your mind, you could do whatever. You controlled our family with your choices of alcohol. I couldn't control our family with what I bought at the grocery store. I mean, you sure tried to push the blame on me a lot, but... I mean, I couldn't control it that way. And that's where I felt like it was a very double standard. Like, you held on to so much of the control in based on whether or not you were going to drink. Like, you could just change your mind. Oh, I'm not drinking. Oh, I've decided that I'm going to now. Well, if I were to say, I'm, I'm going to stop cooking all the meals. I couldn't. You know, that... That was not the layout of our relationship and our family dynamic. So that's where that double standard and that envy came in. So it sounds to me like the answer is all of the above, not either or. It sounds to me like there are resentments that you held that we had to deal with that were based in fear, some that were based in anger, and some that were based in envy. And honestly, it makes perfect sense that it's complicated like that because... If it wasn't complicated, resentments would be something that people could solve a lot more easily. But because it's the component of relationship recovery and individual recovery that bogs people down probably the most, it makes sense that it's complex like that. Well, and then, I mean, if you were like a person in my shoes who was always kind of stuff it down, sort of not talk about it, just when you're coming out of recovery, just trying to identify all of those emotions... Because for years you've told me, you're just an angry person. You're just an angry person. You are so, you know, you're, I don't think you use resentful, but you just, you know, you're just nasty. Those sort of things. So I felt like all I knew was anger. Yeah. But anger has many levels. Yeah. And like you said, when you break it down, like there's an envious component to the resentment. Because you're getting away with things that I could never get away with. There's that fear component. Because I didn't know what you were going to do. That then makes me angry. Some people, you know, don't treat fear like that. They just, you know, maybe retreat. And are passive and dismissive. Whereas I was not like that. And I verbalized my fear in anger. So you have to break down all those emotions. And I think what's interest one of the things that's interesting about this is the resentments continue to build in early sobriety because all of those components still exist. So I quit drinking, but I'm still hyper focused on my recovery. I'm doing all this reading, I'm isolating, I'm worried about recovery and nutrition, I'm learning about brain chemistry. You're still, and you've said this so many times before, you and the family were still second on my priority list, even once I was sober, because all I could think about was staying sober. So you're, you're envious, you're still envious of my priority list, but you're, you're sub- still angry uh, about the things that I've gotten away with, the, uh, you know, the resentments that have existed from the past. 
and you're still scared because you don't know if I'm going to stay sober or not. Exactly. I was going to say, you're just dangling sobriety in front of us and we don't know if it's going to happen or not. So all of those components of resentment are still there in sobriety. You still hold all the cards. Well, it... it, And that's how I felt. Right. It looks like and feels like I held all the cards when really I was struggling to keep my head above water. I wasn't... I mean, I don't... I don't deny it when you say words like that I was a manipulator because that's that is the manifestation of what happened that's how it felt to you that's how it would look to an outsider I get all of that well even but I wasn't I wasn't sitting around you know like Mr. Burns on the Simpsons twiddling my fingers and in you know plotting my evil plan it wasn't anything like that well but even but that's Manipulation is a word that can be used because alcohol was manipulating your brain yeah, by poisoning it. And so, that you were being manipulated into doing things that you wouldn't do um, if you were sober. So for the loved one, for the spouse of the alcoholic, the resentment builds inactive addiction because of fear, anger, and envy. And in early sobriety, the resentment continues to build in the loved one because of fear, anger, and envy. Super interesting. Let's talk about the alcoholics ourselves for a minute. I think one of the reasons that we so struggle with the concept of blame the alcohol or the addict is a third person or it's not your fault but it is your responsibility is because we, many of us, certainly the people that you and I encounter and work with, the high-functioning alcoholics, we are taught from an early age the importance of accountability and taking responsibility. And so active addiction is really just one big, long, years-long, decades-long form of denial. What do you mean take accountability? There's nothing to take accountability for. I just drink like every other guy does. And yeah, I have a few, and sometimes I have a few too many, but whatever, I'm a hard worker, and I, I do well at my job, and I keep my family together, so there's nothing to see here. So the whole active addiction period is just one big form of denial for us, for us drinkers. Reality sets in in recovery and in early sobriety. And so this concept of I've been taught my whole life to take accountability for mistakes. And oh, by the way, if I'm going to own addiction, if I'm going to call myself an alcoholic, then that must mean I've got 20 years of mistakes that I've got to deal with. That is overwhelming. So I can't get away from the fact that drinking was problematic. If, it, if I do get away from that, then that means I keep drinking. So if I'm determined that sobriety is right for me, that must mean there's a big mess to clean up. And I was taught that I always clean up my own mess. And it keeps us stuck in the shame cycle. And so the idea of blame the alcohol is the only thing that's going to free us from that shame cycle. Um, recovery is that accountability. Mm-hmm. That's what I that's the way I look at it now. Yeah. That's the way I think we don't don't think of your accountability as each individual instance I um I have to beat myself up about that and I have to live forever re-traumatizing myself by that. No. My accountability is I'm going to get sober and stay sober and do right by my family and that's how I'm going to take accountability. I think that's what Laura McCowan's talking about. Yeah, and I when think she says 
you know, it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility to clean it up. Not your responsibility to, um, to, to, to forever berate yourself for your mistakes. It's your responsibility to move forward. Right, and that can look different for many people. And I think for the partners of the addicts, that fear of are they going to actually work on, do the work, to discover who they should be, who they are now, who they can be. And and that's where I think people get worried about blaming the alcohol because then they'll feel like they're not going to go further and try to rebuild and repair things from the past and and reenact, you know, go through the resentments. Mm-hmm. And so that's part that's yeah, that's the account of it's your responsibility to like Laura McCallum says, but to go to visit those things, to take care of those things, to repair the situations and rebuild yourself as a as a human in the eyes of your loved one, mm-hmm. a human that they love, and for yourself. Mm-hmm. It's your responsibility as the alcoholic to find who you're going to be and be a good person that you know that you can be and that you were born to be. Yeah. Yeah. I want to offer one really tangible aspect of this, the transition for me from blaming myself, shame cycle, not being able to get unstuck to the point where, yes, I was able to blame the alcohol. For me, it came down to this. One of the attributes of my active alcoholism is that I would say really nasty things to you. I would call you names and I would blame you for things and just say vile things. And once I got some, you know, my legs under me, once I got some serious time in sobriety, under a year, but, you know, well into that first year, I realized I wasn't having to work hard on a conscious level to suppress saying nasty things to you. I wasn't fighting back the urge to call you a bitch, for instance. I just didn't think of you as a bitch at all. And it wasn't hard work to keep from blaming you for everything and being nasty to you. And that was a real light bulb moment for me. It made me realize, okay, the alcohol really is a separate thing, a separate entity. The alcohol is what made me say these things that I don't naturally believe. People get caught up in this, and you and I got caught up in the fact that alcohol is considered to be a truth serum. To a degree, I agree that it is. If somebody's got a secret that they're dying to tell, but they know that they shouldn't, when they're sober, they can hold that back. And then when they drink a little, they're like, hey, guess what I found out? And, you know, the truth kind of seeps out. But that's building self-confidence because you want to look good in somebody else's eyes. That's yeah. why you tell a secret. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Side interjection. No, you, go ahead. You're right. So so there is a difference. But Yeah, so, so alcohol is a truth serum in that situation. But it's not. it's not like we alcoholics have this, you know, just kind of vile... Uh, hatred for the people that we're married to and, and in our family and the alcohol frees that. Oh, it, it's so liberating to be able to call you a bitch, Sherry. That's not how <laughs> it works. In a sober moment, I can call you a bitch and I feel good about it. No, that's not what happened. But I think because you somehow were this protector of your alcohol and drinking and I was your enemy. Yeah, I mean, I got mad easily. I mean, Cause I is there anyone who upon... doesn't understand that alcohol makes people mad? It has nothing to do with addiction. You can drink for the very first time and get Act. mad at somebody that you're around because it's a toxin. It 
It, it inhibits our brain function. That's what a buzz is. Your brain isn't working properly. Mm-hmm. Why do we glorify that? So the, the point is, when I was able to sit there and go, oh my God, this is so cool. I am not fighting the urge to call my wife nasty names. I don't have that urge. It doesn't exist. The alcohol poisons me into that urge. This is great. I'm not an evil person. I'm not the black sheep of the family. <coughs> I'm not morally corrupt. Yeah. I, I'm just... Uh, a, a victim, and I know that boy. That's another whole uh, fraught word to to consider myself a victim. But I do consider myself a victim of alcohol and the alcohol industry and alcoholism and addiction and just everything in our society that glorifies alcohol. I'm a victim of alcohol because it makes me say and do things that I don't want to do. It's not like I really want to do and say those things, and alcohol frees me to say and do them. It's the opposite. Alcohol makes me do things I don't want to do. And so that is that was a key component to me as the alcoholic being able to blame the alcohol and get out of that shame cycle. You know, what I want to end on, Sherry, is I just I want to drive home that I think this is really important. I you know, it seems to be universal to me that the people that are having success and are talking about it in recovery are able to do this, are able to blame the alcohol or blame the addict as a third person or take responsibility while not taking the blame. And the people that say, I just can't do that, I I hope that they'll add the word yet to the end of that sentence. I just can't do that yet. Mm -hmm. The resentments are too powerful. I haven't made it there yet. But I hope that people will view that as a target destination and say, I need to get there. I need to be able to blame the alcohol. Maybe there's too much envy, anger, and, uh, and fear right now for me to work through those resentments and to take the blame off this human and put it onto this substance. But I can see that people who have individual lives and relationships that are thriving can do that. And so I need to work toward getting there as opposed to just blowing it off and saying, that's a cop out. I'll never, I'll never do that because that's shirking my responsibility. That's bullshit. Or I'll never do that because that lets him off the hook and that's bullshit. I just would urge people to rethink that because I think it's, really important I think I don't think you and I'd be sitting here if we hadn't both found the power to blame the alcohol if you were still blaming me and I was still blaming myself we'd be in a very dark place right now yeah yeah makes sense yes okay um I thought you did a good job offering positivity today thank you even though you didn't think you could do it well done it wasn't about everybody else it was well you know it's me yeah. It's me and my inability to like not let negative thoughts creep in. Just one of the many things I love about you. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. 
No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.